Hello everyone and welcome to today's edition of After the Final Whistle. I am your host Brad Clear and this is the second edition of my NBA offseason recap podcast series. I did the Eastern Conference episode a week ago. You can check that out here on Apple Podcasts or on podcast.com. This episode, it's going to be the Western Conference teams. Similar format. Uh, I'm just going to go alphabetical, top to bottom, go through each team in the Western Conference, look at the off-seasons they had, and just give my overall thoughts. Again, I'm your host, Brad Clear. You can follow me on Twitter at BradClear underscore. Clear is spelled K-L-I-E-R. Now, I must admit, I did lie a bit there. I said I would go in alphabetical order throughout this episode. However, I'm going to break that rule just for the first team that we're going to get into on this episode, and that team is the Memphis Grizzlies. I absolutely loved the offseason that the Memphis Grizzlies had, and I wanted to talk about this offseason for some time now because they have just done such an excellent job. And so when you first look at their offseason, the two main things that they've done, one, they've really accumulated as many assets as possible and have exploited and taken advantage of all the opportunities at their disposal to do so. And secondly, they've really taken full advantage of being allowed to hold up to 20 players on your roster in the offseason. And with this new brain trust they have in there with executive vice president of basketball operations, Zach Kleiman, you have former um, Charlotte Bobcats slash Hornets general manager, Rich Cho. You have former Knicks GM, former Raptors GM, Glenn Grunwald. So it's an entirely new group and outlook that's been running the show for this Grizzlies franchise this offseason. And let's just go step by step throughout this incredible offseason they've had. Let's start with their draft. So, second overall, obviously John Morant, a dynamic assist machine, playmaking machine, scoring machine point guard who gives the Grizzlies a long-term two-star duo in John Morant and Jaron Jackson Jr. You have Jaron Jackson Jr., the new, more athletic version of Al Horford. John Morant kind of as this John Wall-esque playmaker with great speed, who is a great passer, who is a very good scorer as well. They complement each other perfectly. And to have that duo where you have the point guard and you have the big in there and both fit the modern game, that's an incredible two-star duo and building block cornerstone duo of your franchise to have moving forward. Then, taking away John Morant. We look at John Morant there at number two. Brandon Clark at pick 21. They moved up two spots from 23 Got pick 23 from Utah. More on that later. And if Summer League is any indication with Brandon Clark, Brandon Clark may be an absolute monster. In Summer League, he was shooting threes. He was scoring in all ways. He was rebounding at a ridiculous rate. He's athletic. He plays good defense. He was contributing all across the board and had all of the tools you could possibly want in a modern four. Has the ability to block shots and protect the rim as well. Memphis may have hit the jackpot here at pick 21 with Brandon Clark. And I said it in my draft review podcast, which you can check out in my former episodes. This was just an excellent, 
excellent, excellent draft for the Memphis Grizzlies. You have solidified that duo of John Morant and Jaron Jackson Jr., your assist machine, playmaking, scoring point guard. You have a, um, a big in Jaron Jackson Jr. who can score in the interior, can stretch the floor, can play high-level defense, can protect the rim. And then you have Brandon Clark who can bring great rim protection, great defense, and if Summer League is any indication, super athletic and can score in all ways offensively. So I said this in my draft review podcast, but the Memphis Grizzlies had one of the best drafts of any team in the league this year and started off their incredible offseason with that excellent draft. Now, the next move I wanted to get into with Memphis is the Mike Conley trade. And the Mike Conley trade from Memphis, the snowballing of assets that Memphis was able to continuously carry out as a result of this trade throughout the offseason is staggering. Absolutely staggering. So the first component, the trade itself, they traded Mike Conley to Utah. You got Grayson Allen. You got the 23rd pick this year, which as I just mentioned, they used to get up to 21 and get Brandon Clark. And what likely ends up as Utah's 2022 first round pick. In addition, Kyle Korver and Jay Crowder. I'll get into Kyle Korver and Jay Crowder in a second. But when this trade first happened, the way I viewed it initially was Memphis got three first round picks out of this trade. Because Grace now in a late first round pick last year, people are quick to dismiss him because of the antics and issues that he brings on the court. But taking away when he is not causing issue on the court, and there are issues with him, with other players and whatnot, Grayson Allen, to me, is a guy who long-term has a role in the NBA as a guy who can come off of your bench and be a solid three-point shooter. So, he was a late first-round pick last year. Just one year later, we're considering him a first-round pick. So, in essence, getting that 23rd pick, which they used to move up to 21 to get Brandon Clark, Grayson Allen, and what likely ends up being Utah's 2022 first, that's three first-round picks right there. So right off the bat, excellent compensation in terms of the draft capital slash young player for that part of the trade. Then we get into the Kyle Korver and Jay Crowder part of this trade. Again, the entirety of the trade. Grayson Allen, the 23rd pick, Utah's 2022 first-round pick, Likely, that's what will convey based off of the protections. When they made this trade, the Kyle Korver and Jay Crowder part of it to me was that Memphis, in addition to the three firsts they got, they got two guys in Korver and Crowder who, when the time is right, they more or less served as the chips to cash to get them multiple second-round picks or another young player or players. And so I always viewed Crowder and Corver as a way for them to add even more draft capital. And the second thing that occurred with this trade as far as the asset snowballing I just mentioned, so we just mentioned the initial part of the trade, just the trade straight up what the return was. The second part of this trade, they took Kyle Corver and Javon Carter, who is a high second round pick by Memphis in last year's draft, sent them to Phoenix, and in return they got Josh Jackson De'Anthony uh, De Melton, and what will end up being either one or two second-round picks from Phoenix. And, you know, you can look at it and say that Josh Jackson has not been a good or consistent NBA player to this point, 
But a, f- a former fourth overall pick, he still has that talent and that skill and that ability that made him such a really largely coveted prospect. It's still in him somewhere. And for Memphis, it's a reclamation project. It's a no-lose. If it doesn't work out, no sweat off your back. He's gone after the year. If he shows his talent and the ability and skill that drove him to being the fourth overall pick in the draft, or he returns to form, then you've hit the jackpot. And all it cost you, more or less, was getting Kyle Korver in this trade for Mike Conley. It's a huge potential reward, and the potential loss or downside is very low. So it's really a no-lose and you can only win situation. And if it doesn't work out again, you move on from him after the year, no sweat off your back, you took a shot. The part of this trade that really appeals to me, though, is DeAnthony Melton. I absolutely love DeAnthony Melton as a prospect. Long term to me, he's the guy who comes off of a team's bench and is this lockdown defensive point guard who stifles the other team's perimeter players. And in last year's draft, he should have been a first-round pick. Somehow he made it to the 40s. Houston picked him up, traded him to Phoenix in that Brandon Knight-Ryan Anderson trade. But D'Anthony Melton, to me, is better than Javon Carter. And with him being a second-round pick, as I just mentioned, in the 40s, he's very, very cheap as far as his contract is concerned. So right there... Getting DeAnthony Melton in there for Memphis, that is an excellent, excellent add because you've improved from Javon Carter to Melton, and Melton comes at very little financial cost because of his contract. What a tremendous acquisition getting both Josh Jackson, who, again, significant upside, very little downside, DeAnthony Melton, who is better than the player they previously got in that second round at that same position, and they got what will end up being one or two second round picks from Phoenix, and with the quality and caliber of team that Phoenix is, those one or two second round picks should be pretty high, and therefore will be pretty valuable uh, for Memphis. So right there, turning Corver into, and Javon Carter, into a young player who could be a reclamation project for you and offer significant reward, a good young player who you upgraded from another young player at that position, and one or two very valuable second-round picks. And then the third part of this trade, they created the trade exception in that trade by sending out Conley, used that trade exception to take in Andre Iguodala, and with him, getting Golden State's first-round pick in either 2024, 2025, or 2026, top four protected in 24, Uh, Top one protected in 25 and unprotected in 26. And this is something I'll get into when I talk about Golden State. But Golden State was very willing this offseason to trade picks out in the future. But the light protections that come along with this first round pick, combined with the pick being far out in the future, I think could make this first round pick pretty valuable when it conveys to Memphis. Now, as far as Iguodala with Memphis now, they're sticking to that asking price of a first-round pick in a trade return for Iguodala. If I'm them, 
I just want to ensure that I get something for Iguodala, whether that be an interesting young player or players, whether it be two or three second round picks. I wouldn't want to stick to the asking price of a first round pick too staunchly. Uh, to me, there's zero reason to buy him out. None. No reason to buy Andre Iguodala out whatsoever. Because at some point, he's going to be able to bring you a return of some sort of asset or assets in a trade. And if he is on your team playing for you, what an incredible presence to have around guys like John Morant and Jaron Jackson Jr. as you build out this team. Having a veteran who has won championships, who has been a finals MVP, who has played at the highest level you can play at in the NBA, that's an incredible presence, voice, and player to have in your locker room as you are building out what will be the long-term foundation of your team. So, I again, I would not stick too staunchly to that first-round pick asking price. I still, no circumstance is there to buy him out, but at some point they got to cash that in, cash in uh, that being Iguodala, the asset that he is, to get either an interesting young player or multiple second round picks. I don't think they'll end up getting a first, but they could definitely get themselves multiple seconds and some assets to add to their treasure chest of assets that they have at their disposal. So we go back now, the overall aggregate result of this Mike Conley trade, looking at it in those three stages, the initial trade, the subsequent Kyle Korver trade, and using the trade exception created in the initial trade to take in Andre Iguodala. The Memphis Grizzlies turned Mike Conley and Javon Carter into Grayson Allen, Brandon Clark, likely Utah's 2022 first-round pick, Josh Jackson, DeAnthony Melton, one or two second-round picks from Phoenix, Andre Iguodala, and a first-round pick from Golden State in either 2024, 25, or 26. That's absolutely incredible. You've added multiple first-round picks, you've added multiple interesting and very talented young players, and you've added multiple veterans. I didn't include Jay Crowder in that. Jay Crowder is in that group of what they got back as well. You've added... All those things I just mentioned, and you've added multiple veterans who can still bring you more in return. So again, Mike Conley and Javon Carter into Grayson Allen, Brandon Clark, 2022 Utah first most likely, Jay Crowder, Josh Jackson, DeAnthony Melton, one or two seconds from Phoenix, Andre Iguodala, and a future first in 24, 25, or 26 from Golden State. And then, as I mentioned, whatever return may eventually come for Andre Iguodala or Jay Crowder. Just incredible asset management and a great accumulation of assets and continuously taking advantage of all these avenues to get assets into your uh, treasure chest by Memphis. Took advantage of trade exceptions, took advantage of taking in salary, took advantage of getting draft capital in. Every single avenue you can use to get assets in and types of assets to get in, they got. Now we look past the Mike Conley trade. An interesting trade they made, uh, Chandler Parsons. They traded him to Atlanta for Solomon Hill and Miles Plumley. I spoke about this in my Eastern Conference podcast, and I liked it for Atlanta, and I also like it for Memphis because I look at it from Memphis' standpoint. I think with Memphis, 
moving from Chandler Parsons' sole uh, $22 million expiring contract and turning that into two smaller expiring contracts, Solomon Hill at 12.7, Miles Plumley at 12.5, I think that if you have two smaller expiring money figures, I think in theory that's more manageable or realistic to move for longer bad money with an asset attached to it than Chandler Parsons' uh, $22 million expiring by itself. So, you know, am I saying that it's guaranteed or likely that they move those for longer bad money with assets attached to it? No, but I think there's a greater chance of them being able to take advantage of moving and expiring for long-term money with a second-round pick or something of that nature attached to it than if they had kept Parsons uh, rather than having Solomon Hill and Miles Plumley. So for the chance to increase your odds of getting an asset back in that type of trade, which I think they did with having these two contracts instead of Parsons' contract by itself, I think this is a good move for Memphis. The next thing I wanted to get into, DeLon Wright and Tyus Jones. So if you follow me on Twitter, at BradClear underscore, clear spelled K-L-I-E-R, I am an enormous, enormous proponent of DeLon Wright. He's got good size. He can play one to three. He's good defensively. He can handle the ball. He can play off the ball. You'd like for his catch and shoot three-point shooting to be a little bit better, but he's a very useful player, a very good high-end bench player on a winning team. So if DeLon Wright was still on Memphis, I think he'd probably be slotted as they're starting two off the ball next to John Morant. But Memphis, they signed and traded DeLon Wright. He signed for three for 29. He was signed and traded to Dallas for two future seconds. And then subsequently, Memphis went out and they successfully offer sheeted and then signed Tyus Jones to a three-year deal at $26.5 million. So the way I look at this is even though DeLon Wright is better and he's a more versatile player, and Tyus Jones is solely a point guard, DeLon Wright you can play across multiple positions, I don't think the difference in the quality and caliber of player is that big uh, from DeLon Wright to Tyus Jones. Again, DeLon I think is better, but it's not that big of a margin. So in addition... Tyus Jones is four years younger, you save a little bit of money, you add two future second round picks, and you create a trade exception by sending out uh, DeLon Wright. So for having that smaller downgrade in player, albeit a less versatile player, you've added more assets to your treasure chest with the two second round picks, you have a younger player, Tyus Jones is 23, DeLon Wright is 27, who may have some more growth in him and you have a trade exception. So again, you're taking advantage of all these different avenues to add and accumulate assets. So in the aggregate, Tyus Jones, a trade exception, and two second round picks, I'm fine with taking that over DeLon Wright. They made the trade trading CJ Miles to Washington for Dwight Howard. Dwight Howard's um, salary for this year is less than CJ Miles. Howard's going to be waived. C.J. Miles, if he was still on this team, would have been waived. So they saved a little bit of money in terms of the salary that they will be waiving uh, with Howard making less than Miles does. Talking about how they took advantage of being able to hold up to 20 players on your roster in the offseason, they're at 18 right now. You'd have to think that Dwight Howard, 
Ivan Rab and Bruno Caboclo are the roster casualties. Uh, but again, I think it's really, really important to note just how aggressive they've been in taking advantage of keeping as many players up to 20 as you can on your roster throughout the entire offseason. Just give yourself all these avenues to save money or to accumulate assets. A nice little move they made that flew under the radar a little bit. They signed um, EuroLeague star Marco Gidurich, may have butchered the name a little bit there, two-year deal fully guaranteed uh, just under $6 million. A nice little signing there. As a whole, the only negative I would have for Memphis's offseason is the contract that they signed Jonas Valanciunas to. They signed him at three years for $45 million. Now, they were smart in that they organized the per-year cap hit in descending order. Again, all of the cap hits and salary figures and numbers I'm using for this podcast are from earlybirdrights.com. Um, but again, back to that Valanciunas contract, three years, $45 million, making 16 then 15 then $14 million in each of those three years. Again, smart that it's in descending order, but I just think that's too much money for a player of his caliber. I think they probably could have got him at a lower rate, and if not, I think they could have gotten someone um, similar in terms of the caliber of player at a lower rate with how much of an abundance of centers that there is available year to year. So committing $45 million over three years to Jonas Valanciunas, especially when I think you'd probably like to play Jaron Jackson at the five, if you can, from time to time, and see how Jackson at the five and Clark at the four works together. I think I'd like to see Jackson play a bit more five. So I'm not crazy about it, but again, that's the only negative I have for Memphis for this entire offseason. So again, to sum it up, they did a tremendous job accumulating assets. They added franchise cornerstones and John Morant and Brandon Clark to go along with Jaron Jackson Jr. They added interesting young players who have room for growth in Tyus Jones and DeAnthony Melton and Grayson Allen. They added seconds. They added firsts. They gave themselves a reclamation project in Josh Jackson. They added vets who could bring more assets in in Andre Iguodala and Jay Crowder. Incredible offseason. I cannot say enough positive things about the work that the Memphis Grizzlies did in this offseason. All right. So now we're going to go into alphabetical order for the remainder of this podcast, and therefore we are going to go to Dallas, the Dallas Mavericks, who, quite simply, I think they had a pretty disappointing offseason. They came into this offseason with $30 million in space. They had interest in big free agents like Kemba Walker, like Julius Randle, like Chris Middleton, coming off of the incredible rookie season that Luka Doncic had adding Kristaps Porzingis, they had the chance to really have an impactful summer and add some pieces that could have improved them now and fit well with Doncic and Porzingis. Initially, it seemed like they were at least in the mix, if not on track, to sign Patrick Beverly. Then they got involved with the Jimmy Butler sign-in trade, where Richardson went to the Sixers and Butler went to the Heat, and Miami was going to send Dragic to Dallas, but then someone thought that Kelly Olynyk and Derek Jones Jr. were going to Dallas, so there was confusion on who Dallas was supposed to get. That part of the deal fell apart, and they kind of lost out on Patrick Beverly because of that. And all of these big fish, high-tier free agents who I just mentioned, they really 
they really weren't in play for any of these big free agents. They waited around a long time based off of Kawhi taking his time to make his decision. Uh, they wanted to use their space on Danny Green. You know, Bobby Marks has said they offered him three years, $36 million. He ended up signing with the Lakers. So they had to hold their space for a couple of days with that offer in mind. Did not get anything out of that. And what they actually ended up doing, they signed Seth Curry at four years for $32 million, Boban at two years for $7 million, And as I just mentioned, in a move that I love for Dallas, the most positive thing I can say about their offseason, getting DeLon Wright in a sign-and-trade at three years for $29 million, uh, at the price of two future second-round picks, taking him in to part of the Harrison Barnes trade exception. After that, they used their remaining space to re-sign their own guys. Maxi Kleba, four years, $34 million. Dorian Finney-Smith, three years for $12 million. Porzingis, obviously the five years, $158 million. Dwight Powell at three years, $33 million as an extension, past his one year and $10.29 million remaining. Isaiah Roby, who they picked at 45, they just signed him to a deal where years one and two are both fully guaranteed, over $3 million total, which is pretty significant and pretty rare uh, to have two years guaranteed at such a high level for a 45th overall pick and a second round pick in general. Uh, but more or less, they just gave him a lot of money in the first two years so that they could turn years three and four more or less into what is usually the three and four features, non-guaranteed, and then a team option for a hinky special contract. So overall, as I said, this offseason was a disappointment for Dallas. One, not getting as much impact in terms of the additions they made with the salary cap space they had. Second, they cut into their space available for the 2021 summer. They still have $37 million in space for that summer, but even though it's not terribly difficult, as we've seen, to create more space if you need it, and even though they still have $37 million in space, they took a big chunk of space that they would have had that summer away, you know, in signing guys like Finney Smith and Kleba and Dwight Powell and Seth Curry to these three- or four-year contracts or extensions, they failed to come out of this offseason really with a starting-quality free agent. I look at this roster as a whole. You have your two stars in Doncic and Porzingis, but outside of that, I think every other player on this team in their starting lineup is, in a best-case scenario, is a high-level bench player. I don't think that anyone on this team, besides Doncic or Porzingis, is someone I look at and say, that's a starting caliber player. In a winning, contending, playoff team scenario, the pieces they have, like DeLon Wright, like Seth Curry, those are guys who are high-level bench players, not starters. And outside of Porzingis, I don't really think that Dallas improved that much year-to-year from last year. I mean, they're probably a little bit better, but not significantly. They had to the they had the chance to improve more than they did. Going into the specific contracts, I thought Dwight Powell's contract was a bit rich. Three for thirty-three. I think he he has improved. He's consistently developed. He's probably best suited as a backup. And there's always a large amount of talent available to acquire at the five through free agency if needed. So. With the type of player that he is and his skill level and the per-year figure, 
I just think it was too much money. DeLon Wright sign and trade was excellent. Only positive things to say there. Great work by Dallas to get him in there at the price of only two future seconds into the Harrison Barnes trade exception. Even though I like what Memphis did with their part of the sign and trade, as I mentioned, I think Dallas did an incredible job here as well. He's a starter on this Dallas team, though, and that's, again, speaking to what I said about the roster composition of this Dallas team, he's a player who is best suited to be a high-level bench player as he was when he was on Toronto before he was traded to Memphis. And for Dallas, he's a starter with the ball in his hands or off the ball. You look at this rotation now for Dallas. You have DeLon Wright, Jalen Brunson, J.J. Barea. You have Seth Curry, Tim Hardaway, and Courtney Lee, Doncic, Dorian Finney-Smith, Justin Jackson, who I like a lot, Ryan Brokoff, Porzingis, Maxi Kleba, Isaiah Roby, Dwight Powell, and Boban. So they do have the ability to have lots of different lineup combinations with Curry on the ball and Hardaway on the wing, or they can put Porzingis down at the five, or they can put the ball in Doncic's hands and have DeLon Wright and Curry play off the ball. They have lots of options. They can, again, sliding Porzingis down to the five and sliding Doncic more or less down to a point four and playing a group that has DeLon Wright and Seth Curry and a Tim Hardaway or a Dorian Finney-Smith or a Justin Jackson seems pretty appealing to me. So again, lots of optionality, but again, this is a team made up of bench players and a dynamic duo of young stars, and they missed out on a chance to make themselves better now and add pieces that would have been useful down the road once they continue to improve and get better. And really, they just use their space more or less on retaining their own guys and depth. And another thing that's interesting to look at here is this team does not really have an avenue to add much uh, difference-making talent to the team outside of this coming draft before the 2021 offseason. And that 2021 offseason is when they are conveying an unprotected first-round pick to the New York Knicks. Which, as of now, looking at the landscape of the Western Conference and the fact that Dallas is more or less locked into this team they have now, to me, that pick looks like it's going to probably be a late lottery pick. I don't see a way Dallas is a playoff team this year. And based on the landscape of the conference, you know, a lot changes year to year. But with 2020 not being a year with the teams having a ton of space or many major free agents being available, I, you can kind of envision things relatively staying tame and similar. So I don't know if I see Dallas as a playoff team in either of these next two seasons. So you look at Dallas's cap sheet, their ability to add talent moving forward, that 2021 pick could be pretty nice for the New York Knicks. Overall, again, a disappointing offseason they still have the ability to be a player in 2021, took away some of the ability they had to be a super player in 2021. I think they're probably as constructed the 11th best team or so in the Western Conference. I think they're probably in a tier at 11 and 12 with them in Minnesota. And again, I think they probably finish in a similar range between 10 and 12 in the following year. So overall, pretty disappointed in Dallas's offseason. Moving along to the next team, let's go to the Denver Nuggets. Coming off of a fantastic season last year, 
had a really nice offseason where they stayed super deep, made some smart moves. As we know, they don't like to pay the tax. They are not in the tax. They're short of the tax and are still, to me, they're obviously in that two to five seed discussion in the West. And I have them closer to two or three than I do to four or five. First move I want to start off with, Jeremy Grant. I loved this trade. Took their first round pick for this year. Uh, used part of the Wilson Chandler trade exception right before it expired. An excellent move. They picked up Paul Millsap's option uh, for this season at $30 million. Again, another smart move. So now for this season, you have Millsap and you have Grant. After this season, when Millsap is likely gone, Grant can step in as the starting four. And again, for this season, you have super depth at the four and two very good starting caliber players at that spot. You look at Jeremy Grant. He's a high-level defender. He's versatile. He's a great shot blocker. His three-point shooting has improved, and he's an above-the-rim, explosive, athletic threat. And to get that at a contract that was signed at the value of the mid-level exception for this year and dependent on what he does with his player option next year, for a pick that'll be between 25 and 30 and fits into a trade exception, that's such a great use of the assets at your disposal. Michael Porter Jr. So before his injury in the early summer, they were really hyping up Michael Porter Jr. to the media. He got injured, didn't play in summer league. And for me, until he's healthy, I'm kind of, I, I want to wait and be shy about lauding him or being super excited about him being a contributing major piece for this team. Because even if he's healthy, I worry a bit that his game may not be super efficient and may just translate to being a sort of, not a chucker, but someone who's just a scoring machine who's either on or off for that specific night and is a guy who needs a lot of volume of shots to really be effective, which is not necessarily the most efficient player. And also... With this significant injury history already, it's fair to question whether he's ever going to be durable enough to be a sustained major contributing piece for this team. We have to go to Bull Bull. Bull Bull, Denver traded into Miami's pick at 44. Again, similar to Porter, there's major health concerns. And with Bull, there's other concerns that led him to falling to a lower draft spot than many thought he would be picked at. But for Denver, they got great value there in Gennigan. At pick 44, if he's great and he contributes, awesome. If he doesn't, oh well. It's not a major asset. You can live with that loss based off of the potential reward it can bring. I think with Bull, though, I think that, you know, I don't see the major ridiculous upside that a lot of people seem to see with him. You know, when you watch him play, you can immediately see... All right, what what 7-3 player has the ability to handle the ball, move so well up and down the floor, and hit free throws and threes at a high rate? But at the same time, physic, uh, in a physicality sense, strength-wise, both offensively and defensively, I think he's going to have a very tough time. And on top of that, you have the injury concerns. In the pick and roll defensively, he's going to get destroyed. You call a high screen and roll on him repeatedly, especially against a team who has a big who can shoot from three or put the ball on the floor, like a Marcus Saul or an Anthony Davis, 
that's a type of player that Bull Bull is going to be exploited and destroyed when he plays a type of player. And if he gets switched onto a guard, he's not going to be able to stay with them. And when I look at Bull Bull, what I really see long-term if his health holds up is he's a guy who can come off your bench in short spurts as a size mismatch stretch five, uh, won't be able to play long stretches or meaningful stretches in the playoffs due to being a defensive liability. Uh, but I think really he's a guy who can come off your bench, who can shoot and provide some sort of instant offense for a short periods of time. He's not going to be a factor for Denver this season, in my opinion. And again, remains to be seen what he actually turns into long term. An interesting part of Denver's offseason, the Jamal Murray five-year, $170 million extension. Now, with this contract, Jamal Murray now, he must, he must take the leap to becoming an all-star caliber player. Because if we really look at this Denver Nuggets team, we really just want to be frank and look at this team. This is a very good team. This is not a championship team. And the team that the Denver Nuggets are going to win a championship with, they are very, very close to that level. But I just don't think they're at a championship level. The Denver Nuggets team that wins a championship is one that has an all-star caliber Jamal Murray as their point guard. Current caliber Jamal Murray with the roster they have is a very, very good, great team, but is just below that championship quality level of team. Now, I like Murray. I don't know if I look at him and see a guy who eventually becomes a perennial all-star. I think he's more a guy I look at as a guy who has the chance to be an occasional all-star here and there from year to year. But with Denver going 5 for 170 on him, he now has a pretty sizable amount of pressure to take that leap and become that all-star player. I think as far as how Denver managed giving out this extension, I kind of think they were a little bit early and jumped the gun on it, so to speak. I think they could have waited a year to give out this type of extension. They could have even taken him to restricted free agency and negotiated him down due to no offer coming in because teams would have known that Denver would match any offer. I don't think the point I'm making is I don't think they had to do this type of offer to this financial extent at the time that they did. Looking at the rest of this Denver team, there's a lot of pieces I like on this super deep team. Juan Hernan Gomez, I've always liked as a nice stretch for. Malik Beasley was really, really good last year. Expect that to continue into this year. Monte Morris turned out to be an incredible second round find. Tory Craig, who's with the Team USA camp for the World Cup right now, a great wing defensive piece. And even though he hasn't really shown anything yet, I've always liked Jared Vanderbilt uh, with his physical tools and profile. This is a team to me that is a very good to great team, that is a conference finals level team, that really long term, their championship uh, hopes, they really rest on whether Jamal Murray takes the leap. Jamal Murray takes the leap to an all-star caliber player. This is a championship team, no question. And another thing with Denver, this is something that a lot of people have floated. If or when Bradley Beal ever became available, I think they would be an awesome destination to trade for him. Again, many people have said this. 
But man, Bradley Beal on this team would be exceptional. You look at Denver's roster right now. They have 12 legit rotation options and then also have multiple interesting young prospects that have some upside. You have Murray, Monte Morris, Gary Harris, Malik Beasley, Will Barton, Torrey Craig, Michael Porter Jr., Paul Millsap, Jeremy Grant, Juan Hernan Gomez, Jokic, and Plumlee. Then you throw in Bol Bol, you throw in Jared Vanderbilt. So again, they stayed super deep. They added some interesting young talent. They're a Western Conference final level team, but Jamal Murray has to take the leap for Denver to get to that championship level. But overall, a good offseason for Denver. Moving along now, the Golden State Warriors. So we got to start with the D'Angelo Russell sign-in trade. Now, I kind of feel as though this was a bit of a reactionary move, but at the same time was a smart and was the correct move to make. I definitely feel that Russell is... I don't think Russell's a long-term piece for this team. I think they are going to trade him. You look at a team like Minnesota. You look at a team like Orlando. I just think with Russell, you have the talent. You have the valuable asset. You got him in. And I think you can use that to trade him for pieces that fit better or to restock your draft capital. You know, especially to me, Minnesota really wanted him. You know, if there could be some sort of package where Golden State gets uh, Robert Covington and some other pieces with it, I think Robert Covington would be a tremendous fit for that team. Um, The fit for me, looking at Russell now, since he is on the Warriors, with Russell and Curry offensively, I think they'll be fine because I'm confident in Russell's ability off the ball. Obviously, if Russell has the ball in his hands, Steph is amazing moving off the ball, but the ball is going to be in Steph Curry's hands, and it becomes a question of Russell and his ability off the ball, and as I said, I'm confident in Russell being that off-ball scoring guard. Without Clay this year, though, defensively, Curry and Russell together, I think they're going to have some major defensive issues. Again, with those two, you don't have a lot of size. They're not the greatest defenders. And without Clay, who is perhaps the league's best perimeter defender, uh, him and Kawhi Leonard, not being on your team for most, if not all, of the season defensively, I think they're going to have some problems with that Curry and Russell duo. They had to get something of major value back to fill that void with Kevin Durant. They did with getting Russell. As I mentioned, was it reactionary? Sure. Was it the right move and the correct move still to make? Sure. You get the asset and the valuable entity in, you figure out the fit, and you try to move it for stuff and pieces that fits your team better when you can. Do I think that D'Angelo Russell will make it the full year as a member of the Golden State Warriors? If I had to bet right now, I would say no. I think they'll trade him before the deadline. But I definitely do not see him being on the Warriors uh, for at most two seasons. It's interesting to look at, too, Russell as a player. Now, we look at 2018-2019 Russell, the all-star Russell that he was last year. And then for me, when he was on Brooklyn the year, uh, he was on Brooklyn last year, and then the year before that, when he was still with Brooklyn in 2017-2018, before he got um, the knee injury in the early part of the season, Russell was a consistent, good decision-making, all-star caliber point guard. 
But is that all-star consistent decision-making caliber point guard that D'Angelo Russell showed he can be last year and in that part of 2017-2018, is that a mainstay for D'Angelo Russell long-term? Is that the player that D'Angelo Russell is going to consistently be moving forward? I like D'Angelo Russell. I don't think I'm sold that he is definitively the all-star player that he showed he was last year, no doubt about it, moving forward. Again, I really would like to see them flip him to Minnesota, who clearly had a significant amount of interest in him. I think he was in the chopper with Minnesota when the signing trade with Golden State went down. And if they could get Robert Covington in there and long-term have Klay Thompson, Robert Covington, and Draymond Green defensively, my goodness, that would be an incredible fit. Looking at that signing trade with Russell, the pick that they sent to Brooklyn, a top 20 protected first for this year, which if it does not convey, they will send their 2025 second round pick to Brooklyn. I think there's a real chance that the pick that they sent to Brooklyn stays with them this year as far as being top 20 protected. To me, I look at this Western Conference, I think there's six teams in the West right now. The Clippers, the Nuggets, the Lakers, the Rockets, the Jazz, and Portland. I think all six of those teams are better than Golden State. And maybe I'm underselling Golden State here, but I don't think that they are better than a seven seed this year. So right there, that's six teams in the West. And in the East, you have Milwaukee and the Sixers at least. So at minimum to me, there's eight teams in the league that are better. And they get and that gets you right there pretty close to keeping it without factoring in maybe they're an eight seed, maybe some teams in the three to five range in the East have a better record. So it's going to be close whether they keep that pick or not this year. And I think it's pretty I think it's pretty possible. I think it's pretty possible. An overall observation I had on Golden State this offseason, and this is something I mentioned a little bit talking about the Igadala trade, talking about Memphis, they were very willing to trade picks far out into the future. Again, the first going to Memphis in 24, 25, or 26, the second round pick potentially in 2025 if they keep their pick this year, and then their 2026 second they traded to Atlanta. Looking at them long term, the only second that they own moving forward is 2023, and if they don't keep their pick this year, they would keep 2025 as well. So within the drafts from 2023 to 26, right now, at most, they would only have two second round picks. They have no extra incoming picks between now and 2026. They're going to be out of first in one of the years in 24, 25, or 26, and they may be out of first this year. So in these years from 2020 to 2026, they have no extra picks. They have at most two seconds and could very well have two, um, be out on two firsts in that time period. And to me, this diminished draft capital, I think, is further reason that a D'Angelo Russell trade is pretty likely for Golden State and really shows that that right there, that major asset that Russell is, that is their key to replenishing uh, their stock of draft capital. 
looking at the rest of the offseason they had, it was really just a tightrope with balancing their ability to add talent while also staying under the apron, which they were hard-capped at due to taking in a newly signed player via sign-and-trade in D'Angelo Russell. According to early bird rights, they are $241,914 below the apron, which is a very, very small amount. No ability to add any more salary to this team. Looking at the individual trades they made, Damian Jones in a 2026 second to Atlanta for Omari Spellman. I talked about this in the Atlanta portion of the Eastern Conference podcast, but both the players in this trade are bad. Maybe you can um, improve Spellman and get something out of him. If not, they just paid a 2026 second to have some room between the hard cap. Kavon Looney at three years for $15 million. I thought he was going to get more than that. An excellent value signing there. I've always liked Willie Cauley-Stein, even though he's at times inconsistent and there are issues with his motor. But at two years, at just above the minimum with a player option in year two, I like him a lot. He's athletic, has defensive upside, finishes really well at the rim in traffic uh, when he gets the ball in the post. So I like him, and based off of the options they had and the price they got him at, I thought this ad of Willie Cauley-Stein was a pretty good one. Jordan Poole, they picked him in the late first. I thought this was a reach, but he's probably going to have a role in this team right away. Alec Burks at the minimum, I thought this was a pretty solid signing. Again, not a ton of options to work with. I think Burks is probably a little bit better than a minimum player, so I like this ad a lot. Glenn Robinson, he's athletic. There's some upside with him at the minimum. Not much you can do that's a smart ad. In the second round, uh, pretty much what happened was that New Orleans knew that Golden State coveted Alan Smuglich. Probably butchered the name a bit there. He's been on their radar forever. So with trading up to get him with how he's been on their radar for a significant period of time, you would have to think that he has a role on this team this season also. Eric Pascal, they got in the second round from Villanova. I'm not that high on him, but in the second round at a lower rate with more guaranteed years, I'm fine with it. Overall, you look at what Golden State did, they were really limited. They had to scrape the bargain bin to find guys that fit the holes that they needed to fill and were players that could be contributors on a playoff team, and that's not an easy task. They did the best job they could within the circumstances that they were playing with which is a circumstance where they were severely limited with their financial flexibility they had to add talent. They're going to trade D'Angelo Russell. They kind of need to to add better fitting pieces to save some money and to add some draft capital. I think they're a 7 seed or an 8 seed in the West, and I'm very interested to see what happens both with D'Angelo Russell and with their first round pick for this year due to it being traded to Brooklyn in the sign-and-trade with Russell and Durant. Next, we go to the Houston Rockets. And I talked more about the Chris Paul-Russell Westbrook trade in my trade reaction slash review podcast, which you can check out here on Apple Podcasts or podcast.com. But just the gist of what I said there, 
what really happened here was that Houston traded the first in 24 and 26 and the swaps in 21 and 25 more so as compensation because of Paul's contract than Westbrook the player. Again, as I said in that podcast, which I went much more in depth with, they'll be better as a regular season team because Russell Westbrook is a better player than Chris Paul and he will play more regular season games than Chris Paul. Again, as I said in that podcast, I worry about them in the playoffs. I think teams will be able to take advantage of Westbrook's inability to be an effective off-ball player when Harden has the ball due to him not being a good three-point shooter. The best fit is when Westbrook has the ball in his hands and he's surrounded with a small ball five of Tucker and everyone else around can shoot. But when you're doing that, you're taking the ball out of James Harden's hands, which is that something you really want to do. Again, I discussed this more in depth on that podcast. If you're interested in hearing more about it, I recommend you go back and check out that episode for more on how Harden and Westbrook will fit with this Houston Rockets team. Now let's look at the rest of the Houston Rockets offseason because, again, I discussed that trade at length in that past episode, some other moves they made here to get into. They really need to bite the bullet and pay the tax. They have an opportunity sitting right in front of them right now where they could trade their 2022 first-round pick with whatever protections they want on it, and they could trade that pick along with a re-signed Amon Shumpert who, based off of the need to sign a player that you're signing trading, um, you need to sign them for three years, they could sign him to a one-year figure that just gets to within the range needed to match salary with Iguodala's. You can non-guarantee years two and three. You have Shumpert's bird rights, so you can go ahead and make that signing. And then you can trade Shumpert and that 2022 first-round pick with protections to Memphis for Andre Iguodala. But clearly, Houston does not want to pay the tax. We have seen this in the past, last year, with the trades moving their first-round pick to shed Brandon Knight to Cleveland with trading James Ennis for a swap of seconds to save his money and get under the tax, with not really using their mid-level exception last year, not using their non-tax mid-level exception this year. They clearly do not want to pay the tax. And that is what's really getting in the way of this team being able to improve itself to a pretty significant level. They could have used that non-tax mid-level exception on a player like a Justin Holiday, who would have been perfect for them. They could go ahead and sign him on Shumpert, non-guarantee years two and three, in order to make that trade with Memphis to get Andre Iguodala and significantly improve their team. But they clearly will not pay the tax. One move they made this offseason I was not crazy about. They signed Tyson Chandler instead of Nene. I would rather have Nene. I think they downgraded a little bit going from Nene to Tyson Chandler. Austin Rivers, they signed for very low uh, two-year deal with the second year as a team option, just above $2 million a year. He was worth more than that, but clearly he wanted to stay with Houston and win. Daniel House at three years for $11 million. House was a pretty important piece for them last year that emerged. I'm happy they locked him up at a reasonable rate. Took in flyers on Anthony Bennett and Ben McLemore on partially guaranteed deals. Again, 
may as well take a chance on these guys, see if you can get anything out of them, and if not, it's a partial guarantee, no sweat off your back. Really, you look at this offseason, what it's going to come down to in the season is how Westbrook fits with this team, and really just how much of how much of an effect not paying the tax and therefore not improving your team will have on them as a team in their chance to make it to the Western Conference Finals or the Finals and compete with teams like the Clippers, the Nuggets, the Jazz, the Lakers, and Portland. Because there are avenues for this Houston Rockets team to add talent that would have or will improve them by a good amount, and they are clearly not willing to do so because of the tax, which is pretty disappointing. We have to look at Houston. They gave Golden State the most trouble of any other team in the league during Golden State's run. I think Houston's probably the five seed to me in this two to five range. I put the Lakers ahead of them slightly. I would put Denver and Utah ahead of them. They're in that two to five seed battle in the West, though. I would put them at five. I think the Westbrook fit is going to be a bit of a problem in the playoffs. Remains to be seen, but I think four or five in the West, probably five, and I'm very, very interested to see how Westbrook fits. But as a whole, it's just disappointing to see them not take advantage of the opportunities at their disposal to add more talent due to not wanting to pay the tax. Next, we go to the Los Angeles Clippers, who are now, to me, the best team in the NBA. And this offseason was a culminating result of a smart front office consistently making smart decisions, making good decisions, positioning themselves well, and building out a team, a culture, and an infrastructure that had the ability to add significant talent and was attractive to that significant talent based off of how well they were able to create this new identity of Los Angeles Clippers basketball, how well they were able to always make the right decisions, to make the right moves at the margins, and to take advantage of any chance to improve, to get better, or to position themselves better for a star that they could. First, taking on Mo Harkless, you know, a smaller move obviously in the scheme of things with the moves they made this offseason, but again, we talk about a smart front office giving themselves the ability to consistently make smart, good decisions and to add talent. Mo Harkless is a good player. Mo Harkless could very well be a starter on this team. They got him and a first round pick, which they then used as part of the part of the Paul George trade, just because they had cap space. Just recently, adding Patrick Patterson on a minimum contract, Oklahoma City bought out Patterson. He clearly wanted to go to the Clippers, have a chance to win. I've always liked Patterson. He's not as good as he once was, but a nice veteran presence in a back-end roster spot. Um, Adds another big, has the ability to be a stretch big and can shoot threes. A good depth move there. I like the move they made at the draft where they took the 2021st they got from the Sixers, traded that to Brooklyn to get pick 27, and they picked Cabin Gelly, the center from Florida State, adds needed depth at the five. Resignings they made, 
Vika Zubac at four years for $28 million. I think it was a good number. I think a lot of people thought it was a bit much for Zubac. I like it. You get him locked in for a good amount of years. It's below what the middle-level exception value would have been. I think a $7 million a year rate is pretty reasonable for Zubac. Rodney Magruder at three years for $15 million. Again, Rodney Magruder, he is a testament to this front office. Rodney Magruder was claimed off waivers last year when he was waived by Miami. Magruder had some nice moments and was pretty decent with Miami. What did the Clippers do? They worked the margins. Every roster spot mattered. They claimed him. They got a nice piece. They pounced in getting him off of waivers. And now they have a nice winged role player at a reasonable rate for three years. Jermichael Green, they brought back two years, $9 million, a player option in year two. He could end up playing a pretty significant amount of minutes for this team, maybe even start. I like Green a lot. And then, of course, keeping Patrick Beverly at three years for $39 million. As far as the Paul George trade, you do whatever it takes to get Paul George and therefore clinch your ability to get Kawhi Leonard. And even if it only ends up that you only end up having Paul George and Kawhi Leonard for the next two years, this was still and always will be the correct move to make. Now we get into the team that they have. The Clippers are super deep and have elite top-end talent and also a ton of optionality and versatility and flexibility in the five-man groups that they can run out there. Personally, I like the five-man group of Beverly, Paul George, Kawhi, Mo Harkless, and Montrez. You know, you could throw in Lou Will off the bench at the one at times. I really like the idea of having uh, George and Kawhi at the two and the three, and then playing Mo Harkless at the four. I, I think with the shooting that Harkless would provide as a stretch four, having George and Kawhi guarding the other teams two and three instead of the other teams three and four, I like that a lot. Having Patrick Beverly, Paul George, and Kawhi Leonard on the perimeter defensively, not even fair. They are going to be a nightmare for opposing offenses. I talked more in depth about this on my reaction to the Kawhi Leonard signing and Paul George trade podcast episode back in July. But again, you look at the five-man groups they could put out there. I mentioned that five-man group with Beverly, George, Kawhi, Harkless, and Montrez Harrell. You could do a lineup with Beverly, Lou Williams, George, Kawhi, Montrez Harrell, or Zubach. You could throw Landry Shamit in there at the two with Lou Williams at the one with Paul George and Kawhi at the three and the four. You could throw in Montrez Montrez Harrell or Zubach at the five. You have Jermichael Green in there at the four, Magruder at the three. You have uh, Jerome Robinson, who I thought had some really impressive moments in the playoffs as the sort of offensive spark plug who can score in bunches off the bench at the two. You look at this team now, Patrick Beverly, Lou Williams, Landry Shamit, Jerome Robinson, Paul George, Rodney Magruder, Kawhi, Mo Harkless, Jermichael Green, Patrick Patterson, Montrez Harrell, Zubach, Cabangeli. You then throw in Terrence Mann, who they added, a nice little young talent there. The Los Angeles Clippers are 12 deep as far as playable players in a potential playoff series. You know, it's incredible here. You have Patrick Beverly and Lou Williams. You can maybe play Paul George and Kawhi Leonard 
with one at the two and one at the three, Landry Shamit was an all-rookie second-team player last year. Jerome Robinson, I just talked about now about how he was good in the playoffs and has that offensive spark plug off of the bench roll to score in bunches for them. He was the 13th overall pick last year. This team is really deep, high-end talent, good veterans that contribute at reasonable, um, reasonable, affordable contracts, good young players who have already proven that they can produce and contribute, super deep in a potential playoff series, 12 deep as far as playable guys in a playoff series. They're my early pick to win the championship. You want the elite talent? It's there. You want the um, a ton of depth? It's there. You want a defensive nightmare for opponents? It's there. You want shooting, you want scoring in bunches, you want athleticism, it's all there. And they still have a roster spot at their disposal. So they re-signed all their guys at reasonable rates, they went out, they got themselves Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. This is my pick to win the NBA championship as we sit here here in mid-August. Next, we have the Los Angeles Lakers. Started off their offseason making the Anthony Davis trade. Kind of got taken to school a little bit as far as the compensation in the return. Obviously, with Ingram, Ball, and Hart, the fourth pick in the draft, which New Orleans was then able to trade down um, to Atlanta, who got up for DeAndre Hunter. Also trading their first-round pick in 2021, protected from picks 8 to 30. If it does not convey in the top 8, it conveys as unprotected in 2022. A pick swap in 2023. Unprotected first round pick in 2024, which if New Orleans wants to, they can defer and obtain the Lakers 2025 unprotected first round pick. The Lakers had to get Anthony Davis. They did whatever it took, and they got him. Now, it was it was pretty fun at the time where there was the period of time where they were going to wait until a certain date to make sure they had max space. Then they didn't. Then so many subsequent trades with so many different teams were made based off of the original trade. Then Anthony Davis waived his trade kicker, and then they ended up being able to have max space Then they waited for Kawhi Leonard and did not get him, which, speaking on that, you wait as long as it takes for Kawhi Leonard to potentially sign with your team. Kawhi Leonard right now is probably the second best or first best player in the entire world as far as basketball is concerned. At worst, he's the second best player in the world right now. And after the playoff run he just had, you'd have to probably consider him the best player in the world right now. You have to wait as long as it takes. They were able to rebound decently well. You know, Danny Green getting in there at 2 for 30, that's a lot of money. I like Danny Green a lot. He's a perfect 3 and D player. That's a significant chunk of change. But then again, it's only for two years. So that kind of offsets the large per year figure. Again, for the second summer in a row, they made some questionable signings to fill out their roster. KCP in there at two years, $16 million with a player option in year two. I don't get that. 
Avery Bradley, who they signed to a deal that also has a player option in the second year at the at a value that comes out to similar to what the room exception would have been. JaVale McGee, two years, $8.2 million. No options or anything, just fully guaranteed. DeMarcus Cousins at a year for $3.5 million. Quinn Cook, two years at $6 million. Year two is not fully guaranteed. Alex Caruso, two years at $5.5 million. Rajon Rondo at two years at what comes out to about just over $5 million total with a player option in year two. Troy Daniels at the minimum, Jared Dudley at the minimum. They got Taylor Horton Tucker in the second round of the draft. Made the move to send out Moritz Wagner and Isaac Bonga and Jamario Jones along with a 2023 second round pick, uh, or excuse me, 2022 second round pick to Washington. I think also with how they filled out this roster, even though they made some questionable signings, there was a component of they really didn't have, you know, the significant ability to kind of be picky and to choose an abundance of available players because by the point that Kawhi signed on uh, July 6th, 7th, whatever it was, there was not a ton available yet, or a t- available still. Danny Green, that's the best signing they could have made. I think Avery Bradley... I think in recent years, the idea of Avery Bradley has become a bit better than the reality of Avery Bradley. I don't think he's the impactful perimeter defender that he once was or is thought to be. I think he is not as good. He is not as good um, as the sort of prototypical 3 and D 2 guard that he has been thought to be. Contavious Caldwell-Pope, again, there's the clutch connection there. He's been with this team for multiple years now. Rondo... I, 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 again, I didn't get it last year. I don't get it this year. Quinn Cook, I thought, was a good signing for them, giving them a scoring combo guard off the bench at $3 million with the second year not being fully guaranteed. I thought that was reasonable. Alex Caruso, towards the back end of the roster, I think is a nice um, hard-playing um, one. I thought was a nice re-signing there. JaVale McGee at two years for $8.2 million. That's a lot for JaVale McGee. DeMarcus Cousins at a year for three and a half for the talent that he is with this limited ability to add talent around um, LeBron and Anthony Davis. Again, a fine signing. This is a team that you have LeBron James, you have Anthony Davis, you're going to be a very, very good team. To me, though, I look at the West. The Clippers are better. I think Denver is better. And then you can argue, I think the Lakers are better than Houston. I think Utah is better than Houston. So you can argue about whether the Lakers or Utah are better. In a playoff series, though, having LeBron and having Anthony Davis, to me, having those two guys in a playoff series on your team, when you are playing a team like a Utah or a Denver I kind of feel like the Lakers may be a pretty good playoff team, better than those teams, albeit not as good of a regular season team as those teams. Now, with the Lakers playing LeBron at the one, I'm very interested to see the five-man groups that they roll out. Uh, Based off of signing JaVale McGee and DeMarcus Cousins, it's pretty fair to assume that Anthony Davis, who prefers to play the four, 
will occupy that role with the Lakers, with Cousins and JaVale McGee playing at the five. I personally think that it really should be no question that Davis should play the five, Kuzma should play the four, and if LeBron is going to play as your one, I would then probably have Danny Green out there at the three with Contavious Caldwell-Pope out there at the two. What it seems like it's going to be is Kuzma is probably going to have to come off of the bench, and then you'd have McGee or Cousins with Anthony Davis, Danny Green, Caldwell Pope, and LeBron. The idea of making LeBron the uh, the definitive one, you know, it's not going to change his style of play much more. The ball was going to be in his hands anyway. I do like though that if you put him at the one, you can have uh, three and D. A 3 and D wing and Danny Green out there, an offensive shooting guard out there, and Catavius Caldwell Pope. But to me, if you had Davis, Kuzma, Green, and Caldwell Pope with LeBron out there, that would open up the offense that much more. I know Anthony Davis likes to play the five or the four, but I think this team, as constructed, would be much better off with him playing at the five. Uh, I am a bit concerned with their second unit because the second unit, to me is going to have periods of time where they're playing Rajon Rondo at the 1 and Cousins at the 5. And we saw, and I talked about this in the podcast I did after the Anthony Davis trade, the combination of Rondo and DeMarcus Cousins, net rating-wise, is very bad, and defensively is going to get destroyed. And even if you have Avery Bradley playing at the 2, or if you have Troy Daniels out there at the three and Jared Dudley at the four, or if you throw Alex Caruso out there, whatever it may be, the Rajon Rondo-DeMarcus Cousins pairing is going to make the defense of that second unit very, very bad. And we saw when Cousins and Davis played together on the Pelicans, their net rating was very good. When Cousins and Davis and Rondo played together when they were on the Pelicans, their net rating was brought down. So, the second unit is inevitably going to have to feature Cousins playing at the same time as Rondo. Looking at what this team is, that second unit is probably going to shake out as Rondo at the 1, Avery Bradley at the 2, DeMarcus Cousins at the 5, Kuzma at the 4, and then at the 3, you'd probably throw Jared Dudley in there. You can throw Troy Troy Daniels in there at times as well. But Rondo, Avery Bradley... Jared Dudley, Kyle Kuzma, and DeMarcus Cousins. That's your second unit with LeBron, Contavious Caldwell-Pope, Danny Green, Anthony Davis, and JaVale McGee. And you can interchange Cousins and McGee. Frankly, for the sake of their second unit's defense, maybe that's what you want to do. And the pairing of Davis and Cousins offensively may be a big positive, albeit defensively a negative with Cousins being there in the middle instead of McGee. I think inherently, though, the roster composition of this team, as I mentioned, especially with the second unit, is a bit flawed. They didn't have the greatest amount of options available to them, though, based off of when they were signing all of these guys uh, because they waited for Kawhi and were late to the game, so to speak. Uh, Looking at the roster now, they have 9, 10, 11, 12, they have 14 guys signed. They have one open spot remaining. You have to figure that they keep that spot open for um, until the buyout period opens. Uh, 
at which point you'd have to suspect that the Lakers would be a significantly attractive destination for bought-out veteran players. So they have that ability to add a player through that route. But looking at this Lakers team long-term now, based off of the monster return that they sent out for Anthony Davis in terms of draft compensation, really what it's at for the Lakers, there is no longer an ability for this team to go out and trade for necessary pieces. Based off of the trade, where 2024 or 2025's first is going to New Orleans. There's a pick swap in 23. The first round pick in either 21 or 22 is going to convey. They cannot trade future first round picks. As far as their second round picks are concerned, right now at their disposal, they have their own second in 2023 through 2026. So their ability to add talent through trades is going to have to come not at a level of adding significant talent because frankly, they don't have the ability to trade for significant talent, but it's going to have to come with trading for useful role players through second round draft picks. They are locked in to this group now, more or less. And as LeBron James gets older, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say LeBron James is going to age as if any other player ages because LeBron James has proven to defy every conventional thought about the aging of a player who has played so many minutes and at such a high level for so long. And I think is going to have a season where he reminds everyone this year, hey, I know we didn't make the playoffs last year. I know people are kind of quick to write me off here. He's not no longer the best player in the league. Let me remind you just who I am. I think LeBron James is going to have a season where people remember, yeah, this guy is the best player in the world. But you have to look at it moving forward. There's not an ability to add a star talent through the draft, through free agency, or through trade. There is LeBron James, and there is Anthony Davis. And then the pieces you can surround them with. And to me, for as long as the Clippers are out there in the West, the Lakers are always going to be second best in the Western Conference and in Los Angeles. Now, if we look at a team like Denver, who I mentioned earlier, adding someone like a Bradley Beal, then that puts them at third best long term. I think right now, again, as I said, I think the Clippers are in that top spot. I think Denver is the second best team in the West. The Lakers in Utah are three and four, and then Houston and Houston is five. And I think the Lakers, to me, have the ability to be a better playoff team than some of those other teams, even though not as good of a regular season team as some of those other teams. In addition, I think this Lakers team is also very susceptible in the event of an injury to, you know, we look at Anthony Davis. Anthony Davis is someone who has an injury history. If Anthony Davis were to miss significant time, that's really not that impressive of a team. So they are susceptible to not being that good of a team in comparison to their peers of those teams in the top five of the West would Anthony Davis or were Anthony Davis to get injured. But as a whole, again, they gave up the whole loot to get Anthony Davis. They didn't have a ton of options available to them based off of waiting for Kawhi, which was the right move. 
when they filled out their roster. They're going to struggle, I think, defensively if slash when their second unit includes Rajon Rondo and DeMarcus Cousins. As far as the long-term trajectory of this team, they kind of have to bank as far as adding that massive talent on Kyle Kuzma continuing to develop and potentially take another leap to be at another level as far as his production level and his talent and skills and ability. And Kyle Kuzma is a nice player. I like him a lot. I think what he is now is what he is long-term. I don't see the leap to an all-star level or the huge growth in Kyle Kuzma that others may see. I think he is what he is. So, again, there is no avenue for this Lakers team long-term to add significant talent. And they are what they are. So for this year, I think they're the third or fourth best team in the West right now. I think they're going to be a better playoff team than a team like Utah or Houston and maybe even Denver. I think just in a pure basketball sense, it would be very fun for the Clippers and Lakers to be the conference finals out in the West. You know, I think the Lakers are a conference final caliber team. I think Denver is also. In a seven-game series, though, I would potentially lean towards the Lakers over Denver just based off of the fact that I think the Lakers may be a better playoff team. But as a whole, they did what they had to do to get Anthony Davis in. They tried to get Kawhi. It didn't happen. And this is what they have now. LeBron and Anthony Davis. They have the two stars instead of the three stars. Had they gotten Kawhi Leonard, I mean, that's probably the best big three ever assembled and they win the championship. Do I think that this Lakers team has the ability to win a championship or is a championship level team? Honestly, no, I don't. I don't think that this team is a championship level team. But I'm very intrigued to see how they do this year. Would be nice to see them and the Clippers in the Western Conference Finals. And I'm very interested with this new coaching staff, with Frank Vogel, with the insisted upon top assistant of Jason Kidd, Lionel Hollins. They've assembled a lot of coaches. There's a lot to manage. I'm very interested to see the five-man groups that they deploy, who starts, who doesn't, how they um, maneuver and use all their lineup options to their advantage. But as a whole, I'm very excited to see this Lakers team this season. think that their offseason was what it was. They just got the star talent in that they had to get. And we shall see if they can make it to the Western Conference Finals to potentially battle the Clippers in the Battle of Los Angeles. And speaking of the Battle of Los Angeles with the Lakers and Clippers, some fun little breaking news here as I am recording this podcast here on Wednesday afternoon, August 14th. The Clippers have hired... Teron Liu to be a assist, an assistant coach on Doc Rivers' staff. Of course, Teron Liu was an assistant under Doc Rivers on the coaching staff for the Celtics in the past. Of course, Teron Liu, the head coach of the championship-winning Cleveland Cavaliers with LeBron James for all those years. So that's a nice, fun little element there, having Ty Liu added to the Clippers while LeBron James is on the Lakers. Just a fun little add there. Of course, also with the fact that the Lakers had their chance to hire Ty Lue and clearly were not willing to hire Ty Lue as their long-term head coach, more so than hire him to just be LeBron's head coach based off of only offering him three years and insisting upon Jason Kidd as his lead assistant. So just another fun little wrinkle there to add to this Clippers-Lakers Clippers Battle of Los Angeles rivalry 
that is now coming to the surface and will play out this season. Next, we go to the Minnesota Timberwolves. Made their first big move of the offseason by hiring uh, Gerson Rosas, formerly of the Houston Rockets, as their new president of basketball operations. Made Ryan Saunders from interim head coach to permanent head coach. Look at the uh, moves they made. Just going back to the draft here. Originally came into the draft with the 11th pick. They traded 11 and Dario Saric to Phoenix to get up to 6. Ended up selecting Jarrett Culver. I like Jarrett Culver a lot as a prospect. I talked about him a lot in my uh, NBA draft-related podcasts. But he's a guy to me who has enormous, enormous two-way upside. And I really like him there from Minnesota there at 6. There was a lot of chatter surrounding Minnesota with point guards. Uh, Initially, there was talk when they traded up to 6 that they were interested in getting up to 5 to be able to select Darius Garland. Did not happen. Darius Garland is on Cleveland. There was a ton of... They they were meeting with D'Angelo Russell when free agency opened uh, the last day of June at 6 p.m. And we're, as I said, we're apparently we're in the helicopter chopper with D'Angelo Russell as the sign-in trade with Golden State was being carried out. And so they clearly wanted D'Angelo Russell bad. Carl Anthony Towns and D'Angelo Russell... Nice connection between those two. He clearly wanted him there. The thing with me, though, was I never understood how Minnesota was going to be able to bring him in. They said, or it was said, that Minnesota was confident in their ability to be able to create the necessary space or to be able to trade um, in a sign-and-trade for D'Angelo Russell. Now, obviously, the large uh, hindrance there is Andrew Wiggins. Andrew Wiggins, who now is beginning the first year of this four-year contract, which, my goodness, four years, $147 million. I talked about this in a podcast um, talking about the Russell Westbrook-Chris Paul trade, but you know, if John Wall never gets back to form, John Wall is the worst contract in the league. Chris Paul is probably right after that. Andrew Wiggins has to be third. Andrew Wiggins is one of the three worst contracts in basketball. He's a guy who is an inefficient player. He shoots and chucks a bit too much. He is not a good defender, was supposed to be an above-average defender, has all of the physical and raw tools you could want, but it just hasn't come together for whatever reason. And is nowhere near being an all-star caliber player and is nowhere near worth the value of the contract of which he is starting this season. So to me, I can't see a way in which Minnesota is able to get off of that Wiggins contract without adding young players or draft picks to incentivize another team to take that contract off of their hands. Because again, that is a top three worst contract in the league. So they're kind of stuck there with Wiggins and forced to make the best of it. Clearly, though, going back to Russell and Garland, they have a desire to find a long-term solution or answer or piece at that point guard spot. For this year, Jeff Teague is still there in the last year of his contract, making $19 million. I think, and I mentioned this earlier, Minnesota makes sense as a logical trade partner for Golden State to trade for D'Angelo Russell. I think um, Robert Covington, shout out to Sam Hinkie, 
would be a perfect fitting piece for Golden State next to Klay Thompson on the wing, next to Draymond Green to provide incredible across-the-board defense. So I think that makes a lot of sense. And I probably would lean towards Minnesota eventually carrying out a deal with Golden State that brings them Russell with Covington and other pieces going back to Golden State. So I think that probably ends up being Minnesota's long-term answer at the point guard spot. Not just Andrew Wiggins, they also have Gorgie Jang's albatross of a contract. He's at 16 mil this year and 17 mil next year. That's a bit of an anchor. Uh, they hard capped themselves this offseason when they sign and traded for Jake Lehman, who is a restricted free agent from Portland at three years uh, for about $11 million. So that hard capped them at the apron. Noah Vonley, they added at one year at $2 million. Jordan Bell, they added one year at the minimum. Those are two signings I like a lot. Vonley, and I said this in my Eastern Conference podcast, I thought the Knicks made a big mistake in not re-signing Vonley and signing Todd Gibson for $7 million more per year. Vonley had a solid year last year for the Knicks when he was given the opportunity. Is he a guy who... You know, is going to break out and be this long-term contributing major piece for an NBA team? No. But I think he showed that he can be a useful bench player. And to get him in there at only $2 million, I thought was a great add. Jordan Bell, they got him in there on the minimum. You know, Jordan Bell's role with the Warriors decreased over time as he was on the team. But at one point, he was a pretty significant piece to that team. And at the minimum, I like the add of Jordan Bell. Still young, athletic, provides defense. At the minimum, a great add. Uh, They took Shabazz Napier and Trevion Graham um, from Golden State. Those two guys were included in the sign and trade of Kevin Durant and D'Angelo Russell. They had non-guaranteed contracts, were traded to Minnesota where their contracts are guaranteed. So you have Shabazz Napier in there serving as the backup to Jeff Teague at the one. They made a nice little move uh, claiming Tyrone Wallace off of waivers. Uh, when the Clippers waived him after they made their big moves, bringing in Kawhi and Paul George and wanted to have a roster spot open. I thought Tyrone Wallace, when he has been given opportunity, has shown that he is an NBA player, is a guy who has a role on a bench for an NBA team. And to get him off of waivers, 1.5 mil non-guaranteed this year, I love it. And I don't think that they... uh, I don't criticize them at all for declining to match the Tyus Jones offer sheet. I like Tyus Jones. I think there's still room for growth for Tyus Jones. But with them positioning themselves to trade for a piece like D'Angelo Russell at the point guard spot, already having someone like Shabazz Napier who can be a backup there, having Jeff Teague still who could be signed at a much lower rate to be the backup moving forward long term, I don't think they needed to commit what was more or less close to the value of the mid-level exception to Tyus Jones. And then furthermore, also, we look at point guard. I feel like point guard is arguably the deepest position in the league, and there is an abundance of point guards. So the ability to find a point guard as needed moving forward to fill that backup role, you know, you have the option of Jeff Teague, Shabazz Napier adds depth there. That's something that you'll have guys available to you to fill most off-seasons moving forward. So again, I don't fault them for not declining that Tyus Jones offer sheet. Or for declining that Tyus Jones offer sheet. Looking at the rest of this team, 
I really like Josh Okoji. They picked him in the first round last year, played a bit in summer league this year, um, played minutes for them last year. He's a guy who plays hard. He's strong. He's athletic. I like him as a bench three and D wing. I think there's a lot of promise there. You look at pieces on this team that are definitive long-term pieces for this team that will contribute for them at a high level. Obviously, this is the Carl Towns team. This is Carl Towns' franchise. You have Jarrett Culver in there. Robert Covington, to me, is one of the best perimeter defenders in the entire NBA. Again, shout out to Sam, uh, to Sam Hinkie. But again, I envision if slash when they were to make a move for D'Angelo Russell, he would be the centerpiece of said package. So they're stuck with Wiggins for better or worse for the long term. So if you could have a team long term where you have Carl Anthony Towns and you have Jarrett Culver, maybe D'Angelo Russell, Wiggins is in there at the three. You know, there, there, you have Carl Anthony Towns. I think you need to get that second sort of star piece or near star piece because I don't think this team has that yet. I think Jarrett Culver has the ability to be that in the long term. So if they could swing a deal for D'Angelo Russell and move forward with a uh, trio of Carl Anthony Towns, D'Angelo Russell, and Jarrett Culver, I think that has a lot of promise. Um, looking at the rest of this team, Katie Bates Diop, they got in the second round last year. They picked up Nas Reed, who went undrafted on a super hinky special. I think Gerson Rosas is a very talented executive who so has a lot of great ideas for this organization as far as moves he wants to make, as far as building it for sustainable long-term winning, for acquiring stars. It's just a matter of what they have at their disposal to do so. Because as far as cap space is concerned, you know they'll have a small amount of it next year. 2021, they could have a good amount, close to 30 at this point. Again, um, that's before factoring in any potential trades or draft picks. You look at the uh, draft pick capital they have at their disposal moving forward. They have their own first and second round pick every single year up to 2026. Have an additional second round pick coming in in 2022. No additional first coming in. So they have the ability to make a big deal using draft capital should they desire to do so. I think what's going to have to happen with this team is... You know, one, a trade for a point guard piece like a D'Angelo Russell, or two, drafting that point guard. Uh, they're really going to need to hit in the draft. They're kind of stuck. To me, I look at them in the Western Conference. I mentioned earlier that 11 and 12 seed territory with Dallas. As far as getting upward mobility, you're not going to attract free agents to Minnesota. That's not a slight. That's just something that's historically been the case. So you're either going to have to draft major talent or trade for major talent. And until they do so, they're in that 11 to 12 range. And what's going to take them to a playoff level is how well they do in the draft. Because let's say they don't trade for D'Angelo Russell, even though I think it's likely. Let's say they don't. You have Carl Anthony Towns. Jarrett Culver has the ability to develop into a very good two-way player. You have to keep building through the draft and finding major talent because that's the only avenue that Minnesota really has outside of swinging a major trade. So I like the brain trust they have in there. Gerson Rosas, um, Sachin Gupta, who is now in there, formerly Sam Hinkie's right-hand man with the Sixers, the man who created the NBA trade machine on ESPN and worked for the Houston Rockets. 
So you have Rosas, you have Sachin Gupta, you have a nice young head coach in Ryan Saunders, you have an incredible young player who's a star in Carl Anthony Towns, you have Jarrett Culver, you have some nice pieces like Josh Okoji and Noah Vonley. It's they're kind of they can only do so much at this point based off of Teague's contract still being on the books, uh, Gorgie Jang's contracts uh, still having two years left. So they're kind of hamstrung with what they can do. So it's really a matter of how well they draft and if they can swing a trade for a star player. I trust their brain trust. I think they're going to be aggressive in seeking out opportunities to acquire major talent. They really have no choice. So I'm excited to see what their future holds. You know, with what they could do this offseason, they did well in the draft. Uh, they made some nice small uh, one-year signings like Vonley and um, Jordan Bell. Took in Trevion Graham and Shabazz Napier at very little money for one year. Jake Lehman, nice little um, shooting piece as a stretch for uh, three type. So solid moves across the board that they made this offseason. Um, nothing that's going to be a needle mover for this specific season. So it's just a matter of how well they do in a similar range in the draft um, in the 2020 draft. And if they can swing a trade for D'Angelo Russell. Taking away just looking at the point guard spot with all this talk about D'Angelo Russell, the spots long-term this team needs to find solutions at. Obviously, I mentioned the point guard spot. I think at the four, they need a long-term answer. You look at this team right now, as far as what they're going to put out there at the four this year, you look at guys like a Jake Lehman sliding down to play at the four, Noah Vonley getting time at the four, Jordan Bell getting time at the four. Looking at the rest of this team, there's not really a ton of options for them at the four after trading Dario Saric. Uh, Bob Covington is there in that spot at the three. If he were to be traded, you would p- probably have to do Culver and Wiggins as your two and three. So I don't really have much concern for them on the wing because barring a trade, you know, you'd have Jarrett Culver and Robert Covington long-term as your two and three, and then you'd have to search for a one. If you traded Covington for D'Angelo Russell, you would have your one in stone, you'd have your two in stone, then you would need a three and a four with Carl Towns at the five. So again, I expect them to be aggressive, going for stars long-term, looking to fill these holes with major talent. It's just a matter of how feasible is it to do so. Very excited for Minnesota's long-term future and to see what Rosas and Gupta can conjure up as far as adding talent to this group long-term. So that will do it for this first half of my Western Conference off-season review podcasts. Again, be sure to check in the coming days for the second half of this podcast episode. Um, I will be going through the New Orleans Pelicans, Oklahoma City Thunder, Phoenix Suns, Portland Trailblazers, Sacramento Kings, San Antonio Spurs, and Utah Jazz, the last seven teams in the Western Conference. We just went alphabetically outside of Memphis first, from Dallas to Minnesota. Just wanted to split it up into two episodes to make each episode shorter. Shout out to you, the listener, again, for listening to After the Final Whistle here on Apple Podcasts or Podcast.com. Again, I am your host, Brad Clear. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at BradClear underscore. Clear is spelled K-L-I-E-R. Again, be sure to check in the coming days for the part two of my Western Conference off-season uh, review podcast. Shout out to the Western Conference. Shout out to the Memphis Grizzlies for their great off-season. Once again, I am your host, Brad Clear, and goodbye 
and good night.